The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. We'll be reading from John 12, starting in verse 20. And uh, I think before I read the word, I just want to give a quick update on Craig. I don't know if anybody has seen that. Um, Craig um, recently... uh, was seen in a video doing worship, sitting on his couch with playing the guitar. It was pretty awesome. So we thank you for your prayers and just continue to pray for healing for them. Okay. John 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. This is the word of God. Well, as you know, today is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday when traditionally churches remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the moment when the crowds thought that he might arise as king. But the passage we're going to look at today actually happens right after the triumphal procession in John, and it looks ahead to Jesus' true ascent to the throne through his death on the cross later that week. Have you ever noticed that sometimes uh, a question or a statement can trigger a thought in someone else that, that seems totally unrelated? Um, so, for example, I, I might be asking my wife, hey, do we have anything going on on Wednesday night? 
And then she doesn't really answer the question, but she runs out of the room muttering something about, oh no, I forgot to email so-and-so back. Now clearly there's a thought that connected those two things. I just don't know what that thought is. Um, or I could ask my son, hey, how was school today? And he goes on to tell me about some new video game. Now, I didn't ask about video games, but um, the connection in his mind is, well, he learned about this through a conversation at school today, which I did ask about. So it, there's some sort of dynamic like that going on here. And um, Philip and Andrew have triggered some sort of unrelated thought in Jesus as they come to him with this report of the Greeks who want to see him. The fact that non-Jews are now seeking out Jesus, not just for healing, but to speak with him, to learn from him, this seems to have triggered a certain realization in Jesus, a realization of where the hands were on the clock of his ministry. So Jesus responds not to Philip's question about the Greeks, but by launching into a soliloquy about the nature of the hour. And our main thought this morning is that at the cross, Jesus drew all people to himself. All people, as in all people without distinction, people from every time and every culture and language and walk of life, whether it's Greeks like these in question here or whether it's you and me millennia later, it would be through the cross that they are drawn to Jesus. And since we're framing this as part of our series on the mission of Jesus, let's put it this way. Jesus came to draw all people to himself. Jesus came to draw us to himself. What does it mean to draw us to himself? What does that look like? Well, in this passage, I see three big implications of being drawn to Jesus. We're drawn into his counterintuitive glory. We're drawn into his victory. And we're drawn into his light. Now, when this request is brought to Jesus, his disciples were there. But also from verse 34, we see that there was a crowd listening. And we don't know whether the Greeks were part of that or not. But the inner logic that led Jesus to monologue instead of answering the question, it seems to be something like this, that in his earthly ministry, Jesus was focused only on the lost sheep of Israel. All nations was always in the picture. That was always the eventual outcome. We know that even from uh, Abraham, right? The, the promise that God would bless uh, through, Abraham, through Abraham's offspring, God would bless all families of the earth. <laughs> And there are hints of Gentile inclusion throughout the Old Testament and, and even in Jesus' genealogy that we looked at in December. But as verses 33 to 34 show us, it was the cross of Christ that God would use to draw all people. And so this request, not just from one Greek, but from a group of Greeks, likely helped Jesus to see even more clearly that the hour of the cross was at hand. And he seizes the opportunity to, to articulate what that impending cross will accomplish. And he starts by speaking of the cross as the moment of glory. The moment of glory. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the, the next verses go on to speak only of Jesus' death. So this statement seems deeply ironic. It seems backward in its reasoning. How could death on a cross be a moment of glory? The other three Gospels, they really highlight the resurrection of Jesus as the moment of glory. But John takes a different approach, and he highlights the cross itself as the moment of glory. How could that be? 
The answer lies in a kingdom ethic that applies not only to Jesus on the cross, but it applies also to all who would follow the crucified king down through the ages. What do I mean by a kingdom ethic? I mean the upside-down nature of God's realm. So we see this in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's the meek, it's the poor in spirit, it's the hungry and thirsty, the ones whom the world considers chumps and pushovers. Those are the ones who end up inheriting it all. I also mean the hidden nature of God's wisdom, as we saw in 1 Corinthians. Remember chapter 1? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So it's it's the cross of Christ that makes sense of all of these inside-out truths. It's a tortuous death on a Roman instrument of shameful execution that is going to show the world what true glory is. And that's why Jesus, after noting that the time has come for his sacrificial death, he goes on in verses 24 through 26 to draw out the principles of glory for his followers. First, we see the example of grain in verse 24. So if you have just one stalk of wheat and the grain remains on the living plant, then, you know, nothing's going to happen. There's no multiplication. But if that falls to the ground and lands in the dirt, then many new wheat plants can emerge. It bears much fruit. So he's saying that this is the life that God calls all of his people to in this world. It's a sacrificial investment with eternal perspective. It's the glory of fruitfulness strangely resulting from death. And verse 25 uses hyperbole to get after the same idea. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hate my life? I have to hate my life? Does that mean Jesus only accepts like masochistic people or dour depressos into his kingdom? No, Jesus was the most truly joyful person who ever walked this earth. And he wants the same for us and he gives the same to us, not only in eternity, but starting now. So what he means by hate your life isn't be miserable. To hate your life here is to not be afraid to risk it for what's eternal, to consider it as expendable since you've got a much better inheritance waiting in the wings. So if you love your life now so much that it makes you hesitant to love radically, to love in a way that will cost and hurt, if you're always hedging your bets, you're taking precautions, you're making sure that God's call on your life is always controllable in some way, well, we should probably ask if you even belong to him. Because those who love their lives in this world will lose them, we read. Conversely, if you're willing to humbly walk with Jesus, even through hell on earth sort of circumstances, that will lead you to a certainty and a proper excitement about the eternal good that awaits you. The glory of permanent gain comes strangely from devastating loss. Verse 26 then says much the same thing, though more directly. It's, there's a command and there's a promise. The command says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, 
there will my servant be also. So if you claim to follow Jesus, you must follow him. You must be where he is. Well, where is Jesus? In the context of this passage, he's on the cross. He's losing his life out of sacrificial love. He's not playing it safe or hedging his bets. He's dying so that he can bear much fruit. As Isaiah 53 said, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, namely us. We are the fruit produced by his death. So the cross here is the Christian's pattern and plan of action. It's our blueprint for glory. The ethic of the kingdom is life out of death. The cross is our example, but it's also the event that changed us to make this lifestyle possible. On the cross, Jesus drew, him, drew us to himself so that we could reproduce cross-shaped lives across the globe. Passages like these really emphasize that glory comes from being willing to embrace shame in the service of God. So on the cross, we see that Jesus' glorification, it's very tied to his refusal to seek his own glory. We see that below, in the, in the verses below, that he's praying for, for the Father to be glorified. That's, that's his foremost desire. And just as Jesus' crucifixion is an unexpected path to glory, so the believer's death to self is the path to our vindication. And he says, my Father will honor the one who serves me. That future honor is really one of the wonders of being in Christ by faith. Romans 8 says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And 2 Timothy says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. So is there any hardship or suffering that our Lord is asking you to bear out of obedience today? The cross of Christ created a people who can endure that by his strength, who can endure with hope for glory that carries us through what may feel like a sentence of death here and now. Jesus came to draw us into this counterintuitive glory that joyfully endures the cross before receiving the crown. He came to draw us into his glory. And second, we see that Jesus came to draw us into his victory. And this discussion starts in verse 27. What he was about to accomplish on the cross was no easy task. He was going to overturn the world's order. He was going to make an all-out confrontation of evil, a full absorption of the curse of sin, as we talked about last week. No wonder that Jesus says, now is my heart troubled. The Greek word there signals revulsion, horror, anxiety, agitation. You know, sometimes I think we can diminish what Jesus accomplished. We can have the mindset of like, well, of course he could go to the cross. He was fully God. Yeah, but he was also fully human, right? No wonder he was sweating great drops of blood in Gethsemane, just anticipating the weight of our sin. I mean, I despair under the weight of just my own sin. He, he had to bear all of our sin. He would also face the taunting of all the powers of darkness. And most horribly, he would suffer under the wrath of God, who in that hour would forsake him. 
His heart was troubled, and yet his resolve was undiminished. And instead of simply asking for an out, he instead prays, Father, glorify your name. Then something unexpected happens. A voice comes from heaven. And this is the third and final time that we see something like this. Um, All three times, it's the father communicating his pleasure with the son, his approval. First time was at the baptism. And he he um, said that this is my beloved son. He was indicating this is the messianic son. He's the one you're looking for. Second was at the transfiguration, telling the disciples, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Understand his glory. And third is here saying, the father has been glorified through Jesus' earthly mission, and he will be glorified through what happens next, the cross. So this voice serves as a confirmation, especially of what Jesus is going to unpack in verses 31 and 32, that the cross is actually the victory of the Son of God. It's interesting, the unbelieving crowd doesn't seem to have understood what happened. Some heard a sort of voice, others interpreted as thunder. I think that's really scary that like a hardness of heart can make us unable to distinguish divine revelation. We have to be so, so careful not to harden our hearts. But given the perceived sound of thunder, check out this incredible connection with an Old Testament prophecy. So here in these few verses, we see Jesus needing encouragement from the Father. We have thunder from heaven. We have discussion of the moment of the cross being when uh, the world is judged and Satan is cast out. Okay, now take a look at 1 Samuel 2.10. It says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I got goosebumps when I read that. It's just all here, right in John 12. The defeat of God's enemy, strength to God's king, judgment of the earth, all announced by thunder. So Jesus is showing the people how God's purposes for victory from long ago are about to come to fruition all at the cross. The power structures of this world, they thought that they were passing judgment on Jesus. But in reality, it was they who were being judged. And even Satan himself, that that great adversary who used Judas to betray Jesus and used others to condemn him, even that was foreordained. It, It looked like Satan's victory. It was actually his defeat is actually, some have called the cross the suicide of Satan. Because when he put Jesus to death, he set in motion his own demise. At the cross, Christ is lifted up and Satan is dethroned. Through his death, Hebrews says that Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Because the guilt of our sin was his foothold in this world. And with that absolved, Satan has no authority over redeemed humanity anymore. We saw this last week in in chapter 3 that when John speaks of Jesus being lifted up, it it means two things at the same time. It means both physically on the lethal cross, he's being lifted up, but it also means he's being lifted up to glory. He's magnified, he's exalted in honor in that moment. Both would happen at the same time, even though these concepts don't seem to go together. 
So again, this is a unique theme in the Gospel of John. The, the other Gospels focus on the resurrection as the moment of glory. And, and this in no way diminishes that, right? Like if, if any hero would come back from dying, we would call that victory. But here in John, the cross itself is the moment of victory. And Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. It's a strange and it's a wondrous power at work. We see this, this strange power also uh, pictured for us in Revelation 4 and 5. You have that grand vision of all the glories of heaven and, and the throne room there. And then after that stunning vision, you're, you're, you anticipate seeing some sort of royal and mighty conqueror in the midst of it. And instead, what do we see? We see a lamb standing there with its throat slit. This is mysterious power out of weakness. This is exactly what we're meant to see in the victory of the cross. Now, what does it mean for us to be drawn into Jesus' victory on the cross? He says it, he says with a, a triumphant tone, now is the judgment of the world. Well, how is the world judged at the cross? We saw in 1 Corinthians, again, um, think in chapter 1, how the cross is a phenomenon by which humanity is divided. Do you remember that? I'll read a bit. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So all people will be judged based on how they perceive the cross. And that judgment is so certain that we can even speak of it as having already happened at the moment of the cross of Christ. And we see that dynamic in play even with the two criminals who were crucified uh, on either side of Jesus. If you recall, one was mocking and jeering. And the other one said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's really the choice that faces all of us. If you're standing in the middle today, if you're not sure what you make of the cross of Christ, I want you to know that you don't really have that choice. You don't have that option. You must decide about the cross of Christ, and it's of the utmost importance that you see it rightly. Everyone is judged by the cross. And for those who reject it, they will be cast out of the renewed creation along with their ruler, the ruler of this world, of course, referring to Satan. And we'll talk about We'll talk about him even more two weeks from now, but Satan has been given broad authority over this fallen world, and this is why in Matthew 4, he could tempt Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. He was offering Jesus a shortcut to victory, a corrupt path that would involve him honoring him and bypassing the cross. But Jesus waited, and Jesus chose to suffer, and now at the cross, Satan's rule is fully overthrown. Jesus, after the resurrection, ascended to the throne room of the universe. He sat down, and right now, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Though, as we see in Revelation, it has still been given for Satan's schemes to drag out a bit longer, but the end has already begun. And anyone who's, who clings to the systems of this world, its power, its riches, its pleasures apart from God, if you cling to those things for your validation, you will find your fists full of dust and ashes 
all too soon. But those whose eyes have been opened to embrace the cross, they will be drawn to the lifted up one and they will share in his victory, in his reign, in his renewed realm. And this certain victory means that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid either of this world or of the schemes of the evil one. We can live courageously. Live courageously. A few chapters later, Jesus puts it this way. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus came to draw us into his victory. And lastly, we see that the cross is meant to draw us into the light. The end goal that will be accomplished by Jesus drawing us to himself on the cross is mentioned in verse 36, that by believing, we might become children of light. Children of light. Now, we won't have time to look at all these verses in detail today, but what is a child of light? Light is what keeps you from stumbling. Light is what gets you where you need to go on the dark road. Light and dark are both really big themes in the Gospel of John and also in First in John. But what's being contrasted isn't good and evil per se. Rather, it's, it's something like Godward transparency and purposeful hiddenness. So the darkness is hiding in the darkness of sin versus the light of letting even your sin be seen so that it can also be seen that your righteousness is carried out in God. So as we present ourselves to him for ongoing open life surgery, light wins the day. But if we've been conditioned our whole lives to, to hide and deny and rationalize and lie about the darkness within, then, then how could we ever become children of light? This brings us right back to the need for the new birth that comes from looking upon the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. The crucified Savior is the only source of light that can illuminate our lives effectively. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Belief is the only way it happens. Believe Jesus is who he says he is. Believe that Jesus accomplished for you what he says he accomplished for you. Any approach that says, well, I'm a bit skeptical about some of it, but um, you know, I see the wisdom of the Christian lifestyle, so I'll, I'll, I'll get after some of the principles. No, that approach is fatally flawed. You cannot become a child of light unless you believe in the light. The light isn't just the wise things Jesus said. The light is Jesus on the cross for you as the very wisdom of God. So belief is the willingness to let your true self be laid bare so that he can stand in your place and exchange his righteousness for your curse. Will you let what's been clearly revealed about Jesus clearly reveal the truth about yourself? If so, then his cross is your source of light. His cross is your source of victory. His cross is your source of glory. You don't have to hide. You don't have to fear. You don't have to preserve yourself and promote yourself. Those who are drawn to Christ on the cross share in all of these benefits. 
and God is glorified. So Almighty God, we pray that these benefits of the cross would belong to each person here today. God, I pray that we would see the counterintuitive glory and we wouldn't, we wouldn't fight for ourselves. We wouldn't fight to be seen and noticed and honored. We would trust in you to honor us as we follow Jesus even into death. I pray, God, that as we share in your victory, we wouldn't be overwhelmed by fear. We wouldn't fear the things that this world does. We wouldn't fear this world or the schemes of the evil one. We would have a confidence that comes from belonging to you by grace, from being bought by the Holy One on the cross. And I pray that as we are children of light, God, that we wouldn't hide anymore. We wouldn't feel a need to obscure who we really are, our weaknesses, our failings. We would open ourselves up to the light and receive the abundant grace that you freely offer. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.